Bay Free Speech Community Radio. For more information, go to our website at kpfa.org or call 510-848-6767, extension 614. We'll be looking for you. Peace. KPFA Berkeley, KPFB Berkeley, KFCF Fresno. Welcome to Cover to Cover, Open Book. Today on Open Book, we present Liza Dalby. This recording is part of the KPFA Speaker Series, featuring writers, newsmakers, and notable progressives, brought to you by KPFA and Berkeley Arts and Letters. Recorded on November 10, 2009, Ms. Dalby discusses her current novel, Hidden Buddhas, a novel of karma and chaos. Liza Dalby. I think I must be a really restless writer because when I look back at the various books and the articles that I've done, even though most of them have something to do with Japan as the subject matter, the genres are really all over the place. Uh, now, I happen to consider that everything I write comes from my background as an anthropologist, even though I've definitely moved from social science towards literature. My earlier books include ethnography, social history, personal essay, historical fiction, and now a completely and utterly made-up contemporary novel with hidden Buddhas. So, so how are these all anthropology? I think that what I try to do is to take up something that fascinates me about Japanese culture and then try to make it accessible and interesting to other people. You know, to people who think uh, anime is cool. To people who are intrigued by Japan. Maybe they've gone to Kyoto and they've fallen in love with the gardens. Um, people who adore sushi. Did you know that Susan Sontag had a quite extensive vocabulary in Japanese, but it was all words related to different kinds of sushi? Uh, I write for people who can't understand the appeal of Hello Kitty. Now, geisha, for example. Geisha have confounded and excited Westerners for a long time. My book, Geisha, grew out of my doctoral dissertation. And this is a book that attempts to, to answer the question of who are these women and just what is it that they do? Also, what role did they play historically? And probably most importantly, why in the world do geisha still exist? Uh, I also gained a certain amount of notoriety for actually joining a geisha community in Kyoto, uh, dressing in kimono, playing the shamisen, and uh, attending guests under the geisha name of Ichigiku. Now, this is what anthropologists call participant observation. But I was working on the assumption that geisha are so entwined with Japanese culture that in order to understand what a geisha is, you have to unpack and explain a lot of cultural boxes. So my book Geisha is obviously about geisha, but it's more broadly a book about Japanese society and culture as a whole. My next book is called Kimono. So if geisha was ethnography, Kimono you could probably call cultural history. It focuses on what you can understand about Japan by examining clothing and changing fashions over the centuries. 
because fashion really reflects society. Clothing embodies these important distinctions, uh, for example, differences between men and women expressed in clothing, differences between children and adults, between rich and poor, and it turns out any number of things you will find reflections in clothing. So this is another book that even though it takes a narrow and specific subject in, in detail, it's also more broadly a book about what makes the Japanese Japanese. So geisha and kimono are pretty straightforward discursive nonfiction. My next book, however, was a leap, a leap to fiction. It's a historical novel about Murasaki Shikibu, the 11th century court lady who wrote Japan's greatest work of classical literature, The Tale of Genji. So my novel about this writer is called The Tale of Murasaki. Now, I love The Tale of Genji, and I've always been fascinated by the woman who wrote this work that's often called the world's first novel. And I was just interested in whatever could have possessed her to write this. This was the question that drove me, and the thing is that's not the sort of question that you can answer by straightforward historical analysis, because what I really wanted to do was get inside her head, and the only way to do that was in my imagination and through fiction. So how is, how is this book anthropological? Well, I had to do research in the society and the material culture of the 11th century, um, the Heian period, in order to describe scenes and people's relationships in an authentic way. What did they eat? How did they make love? What did they wear? Now, this sort of thing involved library research, of course, but, uh, but also visiting places in Japan where Lady Murasaki is known to have spent time, because this was a thousand years ago, but many of the temples that she talks about are still in existence. It was very important to me that I get the historical and the cultural details right, so that even when I had to make something up, I tried to write from an 11th century perspective and use the value judgments and the critical eye of someone from that time. My favorite example is the cosmetic practice of teeth blackening, which the beautiful people all did, and they did it very consciously in order to make themselves more attractive. So I had to convince myself that this aesthetic uh, value system of 11th century Japan uh, in this system that black teeth were beautiful. I did convince myself, and in fact on the book tour I did at the time, I painted my own teeth black to make the point that what they were really doing is playing with color and shadow. But the other thing that I had to do in writing The Tale of Murasaki was I had to describe the black teeth. And this was something that Murasaki herself never did in the tale of Genji. Why not? Well, she didn't need to for her audience because they all knew that the beautiful ladies that Murasaki described, of course they had black teeth. She didn't even need to mention it. But what I was trying to do in my tale was lay out for my Western readers this cultural background that was never made explicit in the tale of Genji. And then, oddly enough, when this book was later translated into Japanese, I was told by several modern Japanese readers that 
all those details that I put in to help Western readers, that they found them very helpful too. And when you think about it, Murasaki Shikibu's world of a thousand years ago is almost as distant from modern Japanese people as it is for us. Well, now I'd like to turn to my new book, Hidden Buddhas, which is complete fiction, not historical fiction. And I found this a much more challenging genre because there's no ready-made framework to hang on as there was in the tale of Murasaki. I mean, for that book, the character of, of Murasaki, her whole, the, the trajectory of her life was, was my framework. And when I think back about it, uh, writing that in retrospect, it's like historical fiction was, was writing with training wheels. And for Hidden Buddhas, I took the training wheels off. Uh, much of this story takes place in Japan, but also in California, in New York, uh, in France. It's international, as are the characters, and as I suspect most of us are as well. So it reflects the world that we live in today. You know, everyone can watch film documentaries on exotic subjects on television. People cross back and forth between languages. You can have oatmeal for breakfast and raw fish for lunch. And you can do that in Tokyo or you can do that in Berkeley. But there are also pockets of tradition and ways of thinking that persist in the midst of modern life. And sometimes they anchor it, but sometimes they resist it. And this is one of the things that Hidden Buddhas is about. Received ways of thinking, trying to make sense of the modern world. Now, I've been fascinated by Japanese Buddhism since, since my first encounter with Japan, uh, where I went to live for a year with the family when I was 16. I saw the family's butsudan. This is like a home altar. And there were pictures of deceased family members there, and every day... Uh, food and flowers would be brought and placed there. And, and I could tell that the ancestors were very much a part of the family's ongoing life. And that was very interesting. I was very impressed by that. And then later when I went back to Japan for my junior year of college, this, uh, this interest led me to spend a summer in the Zen temple of Daitokuji, sitting Zazen. So I had been interested in Buddhism for a long time, but, but when I look back as, at what was the seed for this book, I realized that it was planted 10 years ago when I was traveling around Japan to visit places associated with Murasaki Shikibu. One of the temples I went to was a famous place called Ishiyama Dera, and according to legend, this is where Murasaki wrote the, the, uh, the tale of Genji. And the legend also has it that she wrote it in one night. You know, this is a book that's this thick. So, so maybe that's not true. But um, I wanted to see the carved wooden statue of the Bodhisattva Guanyin, or Kannon in Japanese. I wanted to see the statue that Murasaki would have seen. So I went to this temple, and I figured it would be very famous. And I couldn't find it. So finally I asked one of the priests and he gave me a very strange look and he said, he said, it's a hidden Buddha. He called it a hibutsu. And I, at that point I didn't know this term, so, so I persisted and I said, well, okay, when can it be seen? And he gave me another strange look and he said, 
It can be seen once every 33 years. Well, okay, so I thought this was interesting and I tucked it away, but I remember thinking that's very strange to, to have something, an, an icon that's carved in order to be seen, in, in order to be worshipped. Why would you hide something like this away? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that this, this theme of hiding things, um, this really has a lot of resonance in Japanese culture. So if you were to think of a dichotomy between uh, secrecy and transparency, you know, we in America tend to value transparency. Uh, that, that transparency is a totally good thing. Secrecy is usually bad. But Japan, I think, has long been a society in which keeping things hidden is not only accepted, but oftentimes it's really expected. And this is true for personal relationships, in politics, uh, in art and aesthetics generally, and, and obviously in religion, in a certain way, hiddenness is valued. Now, of course, you can hide things because you're ashamed, but you can also hide something because it's precious. And there's a wonderful quote from uh, Zayami, who's a famous playwright of the No Theater, and this is, this is from a book of instructions that he gives to, uh, to the actors. And he says, He sureba hana. If you hide it, it's a flower. He sezuba hana naru bekarazu. If you don't hide it, no flower at all. So, in other words, it's this veil that creates the mystery and creates the meaning. No veil, no art. So this is one of the themes that I explore in this novel, how secrecy affects the characters on an individual, uh, psychological level, interpersonally, and, and also more broadly, how it shapes Japan as a political entity and as a culture. I'm also fascinated by the templates by which people live their lives, because I think as human beings, we're always interpreting uh, things to ourselves. And uh, now one of the founders of modern anthropology, uh, a man named E.E. E. Evans Pritchard, wrote a book that really fascinated me as a college freshman, and it concerns what you might call the why question. And uh, he wrote about it in a, a classic called Witchcraft, Oracles, and Magic Among the Azande. The Azande are an African tribe. And he, uh, he tells this example. A granary falls on my brother and kills him in, in, in an Azande village. Why? It's not enough to know that, okay, the wind was blowing really hard and it blew it over, or maybe, you know, termites had eaten up through the supports and that's why it fell down. Those sorts of explanations just don't suffice. It's, well, why at that particular time, when my brother happened to be walking under it, why did the granary collapse then? And for the Azande, the answer was clearly witchcraft. And it, the incident required the finding of the witch. So it turns out that answering this why question, which we have too, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? This is very important, uh, and people need this. I think we answer it by means of what we understand the principles ruling the universe to be. And one of my characters is a Buddhist priest who inherited a secret tradition. He thinks the world is coming to an end. 
So this is his template. And of course, he interprets everything that happens uh, in the world around him according to that. So his struggle and his perennial question is, what should he do? How should he apply his secret knowledge? Or should he apply it at all? So it's like when traditional ways of thinking collide with modern life, this question of how you interpret it really becomes critical. And so, so this character is someone who's really caught in those pinchers. Now, in fact, there really is a Buddhist theory of the apocalypse. In Japanese, it's called mappo, which means the end of the Dharma. So that whenever society seems to be breaking down, people start muttering about signs of mappo. But what's, what sort of signs? Well, unending war, for example, famines, earthquakes, greedy rulers, melting glaciers, bridges that are starting to fall down, Bernie Madoff, you know? All these kinds of things are signs that maybe the center no longer holds. Things are breaking down. And if Mapo is your template, there sure is a lot of evidence out there to support it. Uh, but this novel is, is not a religious tract. I'm certainly not arguing for some Buddhist version of the rapture. It's really, it's a book about pilgrimage and search for enlightenment about guilt and absolution, and about violence and compassion. It's also slightly wicked and a little snarky about Zen. And it's funny. This is Cover to Cover Open Book. You're listening to Liza Dalby, part of the KPFA Speaker Series, discussing our novel, Hidden Buddhas. Now, um, I have done a number of book events in my past, but you know, I've never actually read from one of my books uh, at an event before, so I thought I would try that for the first time tonight and just read a little section from Hidden Buddhas. And uh, in this section, Philip Metcalf is an American graduate student who's in Japan studying Buddhism. And he's decided to undertake this very famous pilgrimage of 88 temples that goes around the island of Shikoku. On this pilgrimage, he meets an American-educated Japanese businessman named Jun Muranaka. And Jun has been doing the pilgrimage in reverse. So Philip has started at number one and gone clockwise, and Jun has started at number 88, going the other direction. So they meet approximately uh, in the middle, going the opposite way. They stayed at the same inn the previous night, and so now they're setting out to visit the same temple before they split up. They've just had an argument, and Philip is feeling a little put out. They arrived at the temple gate in an easy half hour's walk. Still silent, Philip followed Muranaka. As they headed to the main building of the compound, Muranaka pulled Philip's sleeve. Look, the striker pole for the bell hasn't been tied up. That means we can ring it. All of the temple compounds had one of these open-walled belfries sheltering a huge suspended bronze bell. At most places, though, the pole would be knotted to prevent the bell from being rung. You know, technically, said Muranaka, you're supposed to ring it when you arrive at every temple. To announce yourself. To the monks? asked Philip. No, no, to the Buddhas, replied Muranaka. 
But with all the pilgrims coming through, I bet the monks get tired of the constant ringing. They tie up the pole. I don't know, maybe it's the townspeople who get sick of it. But this temple is sort of out of the way, so let's do it. After you, said Philip. Muranaka grabbed the rope attached to the log and gave it a few trial swings. Then he pulled it back to his furthest reach and let go. The bell resounded with a deep bong that rippled outward in waves. Muranaka held the rope to prevent the log from damping the bell on the rebound. Almost 45 seconds passed before the reverberation died away. They walked over to the main hall and lit sticks of incense. They placed small orange candles on the metal pins of the candle rack and lit them as offerings to all dead souls. The last thing was to put their pilgrim's calling cards in the special box. Philip pulled out one of the white slips he had prepared at the beginning of the journey. He was shocked when Muranaka reached into his robe and brought out a silver one. White cards were for first-timers. If you had done the pilgrimage more than four times, you used a green one. More than seven times, they were red. Light blue or silver meant that Muranaka had done the pilgrimage anywhere from 25 to 49 times. Muranaka saw Philip's surprise. Someday I suppose I'll have gold ones, he said with a shrug. Philip was speechless. At this point, he was not able to say exactly why he was on this pilgrimage, except that despite blisters and doubts, it felt like what he should be doing now. He couldn't, however, imagine doing it again. What could possibly have prompted his companion to repeat it over and over? Muranaka had not tried to hide his previous pilgrimages exactly, but he hadn't volunteered to explain them either. Philip felt chastened. Some of his earliest memories of Japan were of the way people kept things in. Americans were always keen to confide their thoughts. We crave instant intimacy, he thought. And then he wondered if Jun felt that too, judging Americans to be shallow. He didn't feel he could ask. As they left the dim interior of the main hall, they tossed coins into the offering box. Turning, they recited the Heart Sutra. Philip had it memorized, but his voice was a squeaky accompaniment to Muranaka's deep chant. At least that's how it sounded to his own ears. Just before they turned toward the temple office to get their journals stamped, Muranaka asked him, Would you show me the sketches you've done so far? Philip was still feeling a little sensitive, but he said, Sure. He opened his pack, taking out a black notebook full of detailed shaded pencil drawings. Very nice, said Muranaka just like the explorer's drawings of the natives in the days before cameras. It helps me notice detail when I draw them myself, explained Philip, ignoring the dig. I know I could just take a picture, but this way I think I see more. Muranaka nodded. That's what I was trying to get at, he said, before, when I asked you your reason for drawing. I'm no artist, Jun continued, but I wonder what you could do if you tried to somehow absorb the essence of the statue and, and sketch it more impressionistically. Say, look at it, really look at it for five minutes and then do a one-minute sketch. I suppose I could try that, said Philip. Well, I'll leave you to your drawing then, said Muranaka. I probably should be getting along. Don't dawdle. You want to leave before 1.30. Philip knew they had to go their opposite ways, but there was so much he now wanted to ask Jun. I'm sorry we're not going in the same direction, he stammered. 
Is there anything you think I ought to watch for in the places coming up? Be sure not to miss? He was hoping to prolong their camaraderie just a bit longer. Well, Temple 86, Shidoji, has a hidden Buddha that's due to be displayed on July 16. It's an 11-faced Guan Yin, the only Hibutsu on the entire 88th circuit. Well, if you're interested in that kind of thing. Townspeople do a special festival dance for the occasion. It's one of those cultural events the government has declared to be an intangibly priceless bit of traditional fufura, however you put all that in English. Today was July 8, only a week away. Philip, Philip asks, can I make it in time? How long is this hidden Buddha on display? Uh, good point. Probably not. It's open one day, closed the next. Muranaka stood up. Good luck on your journey, he said. I hope you find what you didn't think you were looking for. I'll see you in Tokyo. We'll go have a beer. Philip stood as well. Goodbye, Jun. Thanks. I told you the temple at Ashizuri is the high point of the circuit. When you get there tomorrow, go out to the lighthouse on the point. Uh, okay, I will. And say a prayer for my mother. She threw herself off the cliff when I was five. Popular spot for suicides, you know. Muranaka turned around and strode out through the temple gate. Philip watched him go. When he had finally disappeared from view, Philip looked down at his watch. One o'clock. Okay, he thought to himself, five minutes. He was surprised at the result, so different from his painstaking earlier sketches. Dead detail had given away to lively impression. Philip had long legs. Determined now, he hit a powerful stride and maintained it, reaching Ashizuri well before dark. He wandered out toward the lighthouse at the tip of the cape. As the sun set, he stood at the cliff edge looking out to see how many Japanese had been lost sailing off from this point in search of the pure land of Guan Yin, he wondered. The Potalaka Palace of Guan Yin, as described in scripture, was thought to be just over the horizon from Ashizuri Point. Some people loaded boats with provisions and sailed off into the void. If they wanted to get there even more quickly, they jumped to their deaths from the cliff. A cool breeze arose, giving Philip a shiver. He imagined a five-year-old boy standing where he stood now and then coming back year after year to this terrible spot. Perhaps Jun's father had been killed in the war. He remembered his promise and said a prayer for both of them. Philip got an early start the next morning. Maybe if he kept up the pace, he could finish in a week. It wasn't that he wanted to get the marathon over with more quickly. He was intrigued by Muranaka's mention of the hidden Buddha. Thank you for tuning in to Cover to Cover Open Book. Today we presented Liza Dalby discussing her novel, Hidden Buddhas. Miss Dalby is one of the many speakers part of the KTFA speaker series. For more information about upcoming events, like an evening with Charles Bowden discussing his book, Murder City, on April 20th, please visit kpfa.org slash events.
paid staff of 94.1 KPFA, listener sponsor Pacifica Radio, is affiliated with the Communications Workers of America, CWA, Local 9415. KPFB in Berkeley, additionally 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, and 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Coming up at 3.30 in just one minute is Free Speech Radio News, followed at 4 p.m. by Hard Knock Radio. At 5 o'clock, stay tuned for Flashpoints on KPFA, and at 6 p.m., the Pacifica Evening News and this Friday, today, and every Friday at 7 p.m. is Full Circle. <laughs> 